This is the Cashflow Digest. My name is Matt Faircloth and me and the DeRosa team are here for you guys on a weekly basis video and broadcast recording. This is also live on our Facebook group, DeRosa Insiders. We're gonna be talking about all things real estate and all things cash flow because our company is dedicated to transforming lives through real estate and cash flow can do that. We're going to be talking about things that are affecting the real estate industry, news in the real estate investing world. And we're also going to be bringing on guests that are crushing it in the cash flow sector of real estate investing. If you guys want to join and watch the show live, please go to Facebook and look up DeRosa Insiders and join that Facebook group where we record this show every Friday at noon Eastern. Hope to see you guys there. What's going on, DeRosa Insiders community? It's Matt Faircloth, and welcome to the Cashflow Digest. We've got a very, very special program for you guys today. Of course we do, because guess what? We're in the holiday season, so why would we not have a special program for you guys? So if you guys are watching this during the holiday season, I wish you guys a happy holiday and a happy new year. And if you're watching this afterwards because of the great topic we've got here, that's awesome too. Wherever you're watching this, we're grateful for you. Take a minute now. Tell us you love this program by giving this program a positive review, lots of stars. Take a minute right now, out of your day, and go to DeRosa Insiders. DeRosa Insiders on Facebook. On that page, you guys can join this program live, as many people are right now. You guys can get on and ask questions of our awesome guest today and of the guests we have in the future. And you can even ask questions of me. There's also, also all kinds of cool stuff, like our underwriter came on uh, a couple weeks ago and underwrote a deal live. Lots of people there watching that. You can also join uh, Justin Fraser and Tara Smiley were on a couple weeks ago as well, talking about asset management strategies, property management strategies, all that great stuff. That's all happening right here live on this, on this community. So what are you doing? Take a minute, go to DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, join that community. Yeah, you won't regret it. We'll teach you all kinds of cool stuff about real estate for free. Wow. So guys, Cashflow Digest program is all about talking cash flow, all about talking about the real estate investing economy and what's happening out in the world there. It is also about appreciation. What we do as a company for appreciating, of course, our investors, like this is one of the, this is one of these programs that we do out there for our investors and our students, but we also do stuff for our tenants and for our staff. And so we want to share with you guys a great video about how the Transforming Lives to Real Estate initiative happens all over the place. And, and it, it's, it is something that we try and sprinkle around like spice over everything that we do. And so today's video is about how that happens during the holiday season here at DeRosa. So take it away for today's video. Hey, everybody. It's Tara Smiley with DeRosa Group and T-Tox Multifamily. So as you can see behind me, it's the holiday season. And so one of the things that I'm most excited about doing this week is, is we are going and traveling to Winston to take our portfolio of three properties there and, and the site team, and we're taking them out to lunch. And so super jammed to have you know three hours with 16 people at one of our favorite restaurants. You know, fantastic food, fantastic conversation. And really, you know, aside from just the fact that it's fun and it's a great way to celebrate with the team, an event like this is, you know, it's very important to do on a regular basis. You are helping to knit and integrate that team on the PM side, those site staff, with the ownership and the asset management team. And it serves a really functional purpose because it helps bind those two groups of people even though, you know, technically it's easy to, on paper to go, it's the same job, you know, they're, they're working for the same goals. It's true, but you want to make sure that the site team understands the what, the why, and the how, right? And one of the best ways to do that is to just spend time with them, get to know them as human beings, get to know them as a team, how that team works, how they work well, where some areas to boost their skill sets or some, you know, backfill some gaps and some holes. Um, and, and so, you know, we're going to spend three hours telling stories, laughing, you know, doing the remember this thing, you know, oh my God, do you remember that apartment and how horrible it was? And do you remember that Mrs. Kravitz resident, right? Um, and we'll also get to spend from an ownership side, get to spend some time telling them about like the year in review. Hey, this worked so well. We're so proud of you. And we fell short on this and, and here's why I think, but you know, what, what's your feedback guys? What do you think could have been done differently or done better to achieve the desired result? And then following that, here's where we're hoping, you know, here's our goals for the next year. Here's what we're looking for from you. And we are going to ask them to give us an honest, candid answer as to what they need from us. 
right? Is it more support? Is it more funding? Is it taking funding from here because we actually need it over here instead? We need their feedback and, and we need them to know that they're an integral part of our success. So go have a fantastic holiday party with your teams. Spend the time, genuinely make the efforts to cement and knit those relationships together so that you're a unified front, all working towards the same goals for this property or this portfolio. Um, and have some really good food in the meantime. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. That's awesome, guys. Great video from Tara. Thank you, Tara, for your thoughts there. Guys, people don't know that you're grateful for them unless you actually pronounce the two words thank you out of your mouth. Say it in whatever way that you can, but say it as frequently as you can to your staff, to your team members, to your partners, whatever it is. And the holidays are a great time to really just be grateful, to stick into gratitude as best you can and go deep on gratitude with everybody you interact with, including those you do business with. That's what this is all about. Great conversation with Tara. We've got a phenomenal guest today, somebody I really look up to and that I've learned a lot from, dare I say. And to join me for the guest conversation is my partner in crime. I hold a lot of respect for this man also, Herbie Francois. How are you today, Herbie? What's going on, Matt? It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to join you here on a Friday cash flow digest. Bumped up, ready to go, man. It's been a while. Favorite, I feel like favorite day of the week. And this is my favorite part of Friday. And this is my glory hour right here. This is it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then we got yeah. a nice to park there. Herbie, guess what, man? My eye, I have never been able to get my crystal ball working. And people are like, oh, what's the future going to look like? What's tomorrow going to bring? I, we don't know. Right? We really don't know in the world what is going to happen, but there are people out there that are able to read the tea leaves of data because data does give you indicators of where things are headed, right? You know, things tend to like go this way and then they keep going that and then hockey stick up for hockey, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, but you can kind of see the train where it's headed down the, down the tracks if you know what to look for. And there are many, many folks out there, and you and I could just sit and look at the Dow stock chart and figure, well, it's going to go up, it's going to go down, whatever it is. But there are people out there that really understand data like no other and understand history like no other. And those folks are really ones that, you know, although nobody knows the future, these are the folks that are able to tell us a bit of what is going to happen, you know, to their best of their ability, or at least what the data says, right? And I know in your years and years on Wall Street, you lean heavily on economists and economic data, economic reports is what we think. There's always forecasting, stuff like that. You know, but but there's there's one man that I've seen speak in multiple venues, survey. I learned a lot, everything from the way the U.S. reacted to COVID from him and what the results of that were, with the results of all this printing money and what it was going to do and what it didn't do. I learned him about that. I've learned him about the future of other asset classes and markets and stuff like that. So let's bring him in. Uh, he's a fellow uh, member of the GoBundance tribe, which I'm a member of, and I'm really grateful to have him part of that with me as well. So let's bring in uh, Paul Sloat. Paul, how are you today? Good. How are you doing, Matt? I'm fantastic, man. I'm really grateful. I know you spend uh, a lot of time doing these kinds of things. And I'm really, really grateful that, you're, that you that you were able to take the time to spend with me and our audience today. I'm really happy because this is going to be a really special presentation. We're concluding the year of 2023. And I, some would say we're going, I keep saying that the multifamily market, to say it politely, has been very weird for the last year. And I think the economy is in a funky place and that. And so I'm really curious to hear where you think the world's going. I have heard you speak many, many times on stage at large events and in private events and just a couple of guys sitting around the table. I've never been disappointed by the outlook that you've had because it's probably been very pragmatic. It's not favoring one side or another. I've never seen you promoting anything. You're just giving your insight on the world. You know, you're not trying to paint the world with a brush that benefits you. You're just like, this is what I've seen. Do with this information what you choose to. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, as that, I've always thought of it, this is the way it is, right? <laughs> as opposed to, you know, I'm happy about this. Sometimes the way it is, is is good. Sometimes the way it is, is bad. And sometimes the way it is, is neutral. Yeah. Neither good nor bad. Yeah. But, but understanding the way things are and where they're likely to go is really important because when we make decisions, whether it's buying a multifamily building, whether it's building out a residential development, whether it's building out some industrial flex, we have to understand what's the probability of making the returns we are targeting on that particular asset. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is skew things in our favor so that we can deliver for ourselves and for our investors what they are looking to achieve. And that's all. Love it. Love it. I know you prepared a presentation for us today and guys, I'll be straight, you know, Paul knows that me and Irby are real estate guys, but Paul also knows, and, and this is just the man that he is, 
he is not going to go and give a slanted presentation about how, how great real estate's going to be or how bad real estate's going to be. He's going to just tell it like he sees it. I'm actually not sure what Paul's going to roll out here with because I'm excited to see it. I, I intentionally didn't want him to give me a sneak peek. So Urban and I could be just act as, as uh, straight up about it. All right. So guys, Paul's worked very hard to prepare a presentation for us about the state of the world and, and everything. So Paul, let's uh, hop in when you're ready. There we go. Good. Good. We are good. We are good. All right. So it was a beautiful day in March 2000. And the hall at Johns Hopkins was packed because a special guest was coming. That special guest was President Bill Clinton. That day, he was coming to talk about his support of allowing China to enter the WTO to provide China permanent most favored nation status and to allow the U.S. to have the opportunity to sell goods to China for the first time. And in fact, Bill Clinton stated in his speech, for the first time, our companies will be able to sell and distribute products in China made by workers here in America without being forced to relocate manufacturing to China, sell through the Chinese government, or transfer valuable technology to China. He said it was a historic opportunity. And of course, the speech produced a standing ovation for despite his vision of the future, President Clinton was forced to acknowledge a few things in his speech that might get in the way of this rosy outlook. They included that China was a one-party state, that the Chinese did not tolerate any opposition to the state, that the Chinese government would defend its interest in the world and in ways that are dramatically at odds from our own. Ignored analysis from prestigious outside economic entities that indicated that China likely would not comport with what it had said it would do in the agreement. 25 years later, these realities and alternative perspectives stand prominent in contrast to the rousing speech that President Bill Clinton gave at that time. That the reality is so different than his speech will shape the way the U.S. economy develops over the next 20 years and how that will impact the whole economy from the way people go to work to where they go to work to how they spend their money. Here's our required legal disclaimer from the SEC. Consider anything I say advertising. You can consider that for yourself. And now that everybody has read this document, we will talk about where we are. The Fed has inverted the yield curve over the last year moving to slow the U.S. economy. It's also taken lots of money out of the system and something it calls quantitative tightening. Usually these two things don't end well for the economy. The history of the Fed in doing these things is we usually end up with a recession with some lag. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's talk about what, where the U.S. is and what this means for the United States. As we all know, we came through a pandemic and the U.S. government spent a lot of money, right? You can see the spikes in the chart. And as a result, the U.S. budget deficit relative to the size of the economy blew out. If we were to actually look at 2023 data, the U.S. budget deficit relative to the economy grew once more and became more negative. As a result, U.S. debt to GDP is above the levels of the peak of World War II, and the U.S. debt to GDP is well above where it should be for a country with our credit rating. At the same time, the U.S. faces issues overseas where it will need to increase defense spending to GDP, while taxes are at some of the lowest tax rates since the 1920s. Governments, when they need to spend money, have two ways of repaying the debt that they have accumulated. One is they default, like Greece. Greece has defaulted five times over the last 150 years and has effectively defaulted over the last decade. The other alternative is inflation. Governments inflate away the debt so that they repay the debt in lower dollars. That's exactly what the U.S. government did in the 1940s. At the end of the 1940s, in order to pay for the debt accumulated by World War II, the value of the dollar was only 55 percent of the value it was in 1940. And so it was able to repay the debt with money that was worth 
half as much as the debt we had borrowed. The U.S., since it is accumulating lots of debt and may have to fight a war, has started to down the road of inflation. Typically, these occur in multiple episodes of inflation, and we should assume that in the future, in order to inflate away the debt, there will be future episodes of inflation as the decade unfolds. Since interest rates relate to inflation, this will have an impact on all areas of real estate as the decade continues. Let's talk about treasury bills. Treasury bills have gone up back to where they were pre-2008, when the last time the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. And here's what quantitative easing looks like when it's in money at the economy during the pandemic. And here's what it looks like now where the Fed has taken money out of the economy. Fed funds, as we all know, have gone up significantly, and it's been the largest tightening campaign since the 1970s, the last time we had real inflation. A few years ago, I was talking about how interest rates were going to go up to where they were prior to the 08 crisis. And that is where we are today. And this has implications for the federal government as interest payments have exploded due to the rise in debt and interest payments relative to GDP have risen significantly. The Federal Reserve has inverted the yield curve and the yield curve is headed towards positive territory as the Federal Reserve plans to lower rates later this year. The issue is every time the yield curve turns positive, which indicates we will have future growth, unfortunately, the U.S. has entered a recession over the last 50 years. The only time that we inverted the yield curve, which doesn't show on here, is if we go back to the 1960s and we inverted the yield curve then and had a tremendous slowdown, but government spending was growing at such a space, it offset a recession in the economy. So let's talk about where we were with autos and housing, which are quite relevant for the audience. Okay. Autos have been squeezed by two things. Number one is interest rates going up, which has caused auto payments to soar for new vehicles. And in fact, delinquency rates are as high as they ever get on auto loans. In addition, the whole move to green energy has driven up the cost of an auto for the average consumer. If we were to look at a Jeep, which is the typical car that somebody buys, and let's say a Jeep Grand Cherokee, very middle-class car, pre-pandemic, this car was $30,000. Today, to buy the exact same vehicle is $40,000 or a third more. But if you want to buy the electric vehicle version of that same Jeep, it costs $60,000 or twice as much as the car cost in 2019. For the average American, that represents a huge squeeze as incomes have not nearly kept up with the cost of autos or anything else that they buy. In fact, if you were to go to the grocery store, what you can see is that unit volumes at the grocery store are negative because the consumer has had to deal with massive inflation for all the goods he or she buys on an everyday basis. This has also been reflected in house prices. Home prices have risen at a faster rate than they did during the housing bubble in 2005, 2006. As mortgage rates went up, you can see that housing prices have begun to correct. If we were to look at the late 1990s, which is similar to the environment we have today, where there was not an overstock of housing in the marketplace, what occurred back then is we had a correction in prices in the late 1990s, as we're having now, and then prices went sideways as incomes caught up for four to five years before they took off again in the early 2000s. And here we can see the correction where prices have pulled back. And oh, by the way, every time prices have pulled back like this, if we look at 69.70, or we look at 90.91, or we look at 07.8, we have been on the precipice of a recession. Residential investment to GDP has recovered back to a normal range, and we expect it to rise again, starting again in 2024. We expect new home construction to rise next year as mortgage rates come down and provide a tailwind to home buying as housing affordability improves finally. As we all know, mortgage rates went up significantly, and that impacted housing turnover, which collapsed. And housing turnover is back to the levels that we last saw in 2010-2011. However, new single-family home sales have bounced already even before the 
mortgage rates have really come down. And part of this is due to the major home builders providing subsidies for new home buyers, as well as the price of the median home that they are selling has started to come down significantly. They're now building a less expensive product because that is what the consumer wants and what the consumer can afford, especially in a higher interest rate environment. Single family permits have bounced as the home builders have rejiggered their product and new housing starts have accelerated back to the peaks of where they were prior to the rise in interest rates. Orders have been fairly robust for the home builders and are expected to continue that way. And this is because single family permits in place, authorized but not started, are as good as they've been since prior to the housing downturn in 07, 08. And total housing permits, if we look at multifamily, which we'll look at in a moment, are in the midpoints of the range and about where we need them to meet demand in the US. Now, I would note that this permit level excludes the massive, shall we say, illegal immigration that's come across the border over the last couple of years, which would significantly increase this number for housing units. And as you can see, housing affordability has been poor, but will improve as rates come down and as incomes begin to catch up next year. Let's talk about multifamily for a minute. Multifamily went through what I would call uh, a perfect storm in its favor from 2010 to 2000. What happened? In the 03 to 07 period, we put a lot of people into homes that should never have been in housing. What happened post the housing buzz is a lot of these people came back into multifamily buildings. At the same time, we had a long-term downturn in interest rates, which boosted the value of multifamily structures, allowing those who wanted to buy and redevelop them to benefit from this tailwind. That attracted more capital and ultimately led to a huge amount of building last seen during the 1980s. Also from the decade from 2010 to 2020, the sector benefited from the millennials coming into the workforce in big, big numbers, which boosted their move into apartments as they could afford them. The millennials are now moving into single family residences and represent the marginal buyer. And they will continue to move there as they marry, which the data show, and as they continue to have children. So we expect demand not to be as robust for multifamily as it has been. And demand for residential to continue to remain strong as the last few years have reflected. We have, as we know, in the multifamily area, had a huge surge in starts and in investment. Unfortunately, for those who invested and did not think that rates would go up and have been in the construction phase, their projects are upside down. And their projects are upside down because of two things. Number one, the cost to refinance their debt that they projected in their original assumptions is no longer valid, number one. And the value of their building is down because cap rates have gone up. That causes a number of the buildings that have been started in the last couple of years to be upside down with investors wiped out and with no way to make the investor whole and with buildings that will need more equity for the banks to sell the debt at a discount in order for these buildings to actually become whole. The likely course for these buildings is they will be uh, pushed out of the bank portfolios over the next year or two, just as office has been pushed out, and that there will be opportunities for those who have relationships with bankers to come and look at these properties and take them over. Before we get to the corporate and government and what's going on there, I want to talk about some of the other areas of real estate that have some opportunities that will show up over the next couple of years. I think one is industrial flex. What the U.S. is starting to do and what the U.S. has done is begun to put in place its own Marshall Plan, and we'll discuss that in a minute. But what's going on is that demand has continued to rise for industrial flex space, and this space should be a good area for real estate investors to look at. Other areas that seem to be okay are hotels, where we haven't been massively overbuilding and, in fact, have underbuilt the last few years, and supply needs to catch up with demand. And if we look at warehouse, we're going through an indigestion period because we had a huge building during the pandemic 
because online retail exploded. But with consumers now moving around, some of that excess demand's gone away and we have a short-term oversupply in warehouse. We expect that to work itself out over the next couple of years and then warehouse be very interesting going forward as online and warehouse continues to be needed for both retail and for manufacturing distribution. Some areas that might have some indigestion problems are areas like self-storage. Self-storage benefited during the pandemic from the government backstopping everyone. Period, finish the end. The government filled the gap for the consumer. But that's very different than what happens in a normal recession. In a normal recession, consumers cut back on everything, including self-storage. And occupancy dropped significantly during a recession. That's what happened in 08, 09. That's what happened in 01, 02 recession. That's what happened in the 91, 92 recession. And that's what happened in the 80, 82 recession. So we expect in the next recession that occupancy will drop for self-storage. And in fact, if you look at the public company data for somebody like public storage, which is the largest public company in the country, occupancy was down 1.3% year over year in the third quarter. This is occurring at the same time that we know a lot of self-storage is under construction across the country and that rates for self-storage have come down. So that is one area that we would avoid because we think that things will get worse before they get better. And because of the amount of self-storage facilities being built, especially in certain markets, we need to look very carefully at what's going on. Another thing that we should think about is where is the growth going to occur in the country? And we'll talk about geography and what geographies might benefit that have not benefited over the last 20 years, but may have much better growth than expected over the next decade as the changes we're about to talk about occur. Let's start with the economic back backdrop here for corporations and the government. Here's the big one. Industrial production used to grow with the economy in the U.S. With the entry of China into WTO, U.S. industrial production stopped growing. And that caused a problem for the country, as we'll talk to in a minute. Corporate profits after tax have continued to grow pretty well. And corporate capital spending has continued to grow mostly in technology. Non-residential construction spending has started to pick up as the government's infrastructure bill and other things have gone through. And public construction spending is picking up this year. These data is through 2022. And when we see the 2023 data, we expect them both to have made new highs. And by the way, if we look at public construction spending relative to GDP, it's incredibly low. As those of you involved in constructing facilities know, cement and aggregate prices have continued to be strong. We expect this to continue as road building and public construction and the expected build out of the industrial sector will demand much concrete and aggregates. So for those of you in the build area, don't expect any of those costs to get better anytime soon. Okay. I'm going to take a brief detour here to talk about this because I think this will help given that we're entering a presidential election year and we'll explain the popularity of President Trump or former President Trump versus current sitting President Biden. Okay, here's corporate profits to GDP. And here is labor share of GDP. Labor share of GDP was improving under President Trump. And if we were to actually look at real incomes and real household growth, they were doing well. And what happened is it was lost due to inflation while corporations were able to price up with inflation. And if you were to look at one thing, this chart explains the popularity of President, former President Trump versus current sitting President Biden. I always love my dog, so I thought I'd provide a little break to everything I've been talking about. But my dog, who is now my son's dog, loves to be taken care of and loves to be loved. And the public hasn't exactly been loved over the last few years with this massive inflation. And so we expect some unexpected results next year in the presidential election that could ultimately impact what legislation gets passed post-election and how the taxes are dealt with in 2025 as the U.S. government is going to have to raise taxes. So just remember, this is going to be going on in the background as we're thinking about how the world's going to unfold next year. And I also want to talk a little bit about valuation on Wall Street because it impacts to some extent the valuation of real estate, which goes from private to public hands. And what I can tell you is I look at this stuff, valuation is still very expensive in the public markets. 
and is not correcting anytime soon. And so we think there's a future revaluation downward relative to everything that's going to have to occur in the world at large, especially as interest rates go up and we look at these things. And we'll skip a couple of charts, but we expect returns in the public markets and returns in some of the private markets to be less than what we had over the last decade and there to be a balancing impact that will provide a long-term blended rate much lower than what people are used to over the last 12 to 14 years. Now I'm going to talk about this for five minutes so I don't run over and we allow time for Q&A, but I want to talk about some things that are really important here that have to do with what's going on in the world and where the U.S. is going. So let's talk about a couple of things. According to the IMF, China will be the largest country economically by 2030. We disagree with this and think the U.S. will still be the largest economy in the world. And that is because of what's gone on over the last few years and what's likely to go on the rest of this decade. I also would note that the U.S. dollar is very expensive on a historical basis, and we're likely to see a weaker dollar. So those expecting cheaper imports over the long term to allow for less construction costs or other things, I think will be disappointed. Because the U.S. dollar is very overvalued, especially relative to EM currencies. And this chart basically shows how overvalued the U.S. dollar is or how undervalued the currencies in the rest of the world are. Okay. And we have something I call whack-a-mole. I don't have time. But this is China imports from Vietnam. We cut out China. We get Vietnam. And we're going to talk about this. Industrial production manufacturing. Industrial production manufacturing has not grown since basically 2000 which is a problem given the challenges the U.S. faces in the future. And industrial production relative to the economy has collapsed, which is also an issue for the United States from a geopolitical standpoint. There are three pieces of legislation that got passed in the first two years of the Biden administration. Those are the Inflation Reduction Act. They are the Semiconductor Act, known as the CHIPS Act. And they are the Green Energy Act, which basically underpins green energy production. Those acts are already having an impact on the United States and will have an accelerating impact on the United States. We're gonna build that infrastructure and we're going to rebuild our industrial economy. Here's US gross fixed capital formation, which has recovered to the low end of its long-term range. And IP Invest and IE R&D continues to move upward, which is important because the US remains very powerful in R&D we think of lots of new things. We're leaders in AI. We're leaders in many other areas of technology. And I'm just going to talk about this for one sec. One of the reasons that we have not had labor see real incomes grow and seen the labor share of the economy poor, grow poorly is that we have not invested in manufacturing. And manufacturing produces productivity. And productivity produces real income growth. And to the extent we're going to see a populist type of administration coming in that's going to benefit labor because labor votes and votes a lot more than capital, then what we're going to see probably, and based on legislation already passed, is increased manufacturing investment that's going to drive productivity growth and real incomes upward. And we're already seeing an impact. This is what U.S. manufacturing structure investment looked like prior to the legislation. And here's what investment did post. And as you can see, manufacturing investment relative to the economy has exploded upward. We expect the same thing to happen on the equipment side. As manufacturing is very complicated, and this is just an idea of what you have to build in order to build an electric vehicle battery. Every single one of these represents a different plant. And all of this requires a fully integrated industrial economy to produce. And even some of the precursor components require an industrial economy to produce. So we think this is going to underpin much better economic growth over the next decade than we saw over the last decade, where economic growth averaged less than two and a half percent under the Obama administration, which accelerated pre-pandemic to north of three percent, which would be similar to what we had from 1980 to 2000. And so we expect economic growth to return to that level. and that we will see higher productivity, higher income growth, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and higher costs. But the net result is the economy is going to grow faster and that the various people in the economy who are 
contributing to the economy will benefit more. I know that's a very abbreviated discussion of what's a complicated subject, but for real estate, we see many opportunities. The opportunities are going to be different than what we saw over the last decade, but they will have to contend with higher interest rates and higher inflation. However, the opportunity will be there to make spreads and to make money going forward. Thank you. Great stuff, Paul. Thank you. And and, and I appreciate your global view on the whole thing. Uh, I wrote in a bunch of questions. And those of you guys that are watching right now, our audience, just pop your questions into the, into the comment section and I'll shout them out as they come in. I, I don't know if you said this directly, but do you forecast a recession in 2024? Let's talk about timing of recession. Typically, recessions occur after the yield curve has gone from negative to positive. It's the opposite of what people think. People think the yield curve goes negative, we're having a recession right away. No, what happens is when it turns positive, that's when typically you have to look out for recession occurring because it typically turns positive before we have a recession. Do I think we're gonna have a recession? Probably sometime in 2025, 2024, maybe second half we'll have a recession, but the recession's gonna be mild. And here's why, Matt, okay? I don't see, I think of this more like, do you remember 0102? recession. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was pretty mild recession, right? It was, it was like a bubble boom. It was because it was a dot-com bubble kind of thing. Right. Dot-com bubble burst, but the rest of the economy did fine. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's what you have here is we had a technology bubble, right? Sort of in 21, 22, that was funded by venture capital and that burst, right? But I think the rest of the economy is going to do fine because I don't see excess pretty much anywhere, except there was some overbuilding and multifamily in certain markets, yeah. not other markets. I want to talk about, but here's the deal. Think about the U.S. and think about that we have underinvested in the industrial area of the economy, okay? We're going to invest more in that, okay? It's going to become a bigger piece of the economy over the next five to 10 years, okay? So those areas in the country that benefit from that are going to be areas that real estate investors are going to want to have a focus on, right? That's one of the things, yes. Do I think we're going to have a recession? Yes, but I think it's going to be modest because the government has encouraged a lot of spending and a lot of the infrastructure spending was structured for to start in 23 and then to accelerate in 24 going into the presidential election and grow more in 2025. The big bullet that will need to be bit is in 2025, we're going to raise taxes. And those taxes are going to go up on everything. Okay. They're going to eliminate tax breaks. Yours and my personal taxes are going to go up. Taxes for corporations are going to go up. And taxes on real estate are going to go up. Federal government needs money. I think taxes are going to go up. And that's going to have an impact on 2025, 2026, right? It'll slow the economy because I think underneath the economy is healthier than it's been in a long time. And that it's growing in a way that's going to really accelerate growth as the decade unfolds. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, Irvin, did you have a follow-up or you want to hop in on anything just yet? Thanks for that uh, presentation. A lot of cross-current of, of, of events seems to be taking place, not only on the macro side, but also on the micro side. But as we are right. real estate investors here and a lot of our audiences, I want to kind of turn this towards on the real estate side. On one hand, you know, we see after under investment, if you will, in multifamily over the past couple of years, there's going to be a real step up. There's going to be a real jump up and increase in multifamily supply of multifamily coming to the market. And a lot of that is going to be coming to into the Sunbelt markets. Correct. From an investor's perspective, what is your recommendation for an investor who is thinking about investing in any of those markets where they are expecting a lot of supply of units coming in? coupled with the announcement that the Fed made last week that we're going into an easing environment. And those two events, what kind of impact does that have on valuations of multifamily and cap rates overall? Okay, so let's talk about valuations and cap rates and talk about investing those markets in sequence. Okay, cap rates have started to creep up, but they're relatively low compared to history. Mm -hmm. And they are low relative to where interest rates are likely to settle. Okay. So the Fed's going to cut rates, but they're not going back to zero. Right. Okay. Yep. We're going to have inflation sort of like, let's say pre-2008, where maybe inflation bottoms around 2% and goes up to 4 maybe 5% on the upside, right? 
or if they print a lot of money, it could go beyond that, like we had in the 70s. So if we're back to sort of that sort of 90s, early 2000s environment, cap rates were higher. So I think cap rates drift upward over time. I think public valuations drift downward because interest rates are just going to be structurally higher. Okay. So I don't think valuation is going to have a huge bounce, but I don't think valuation has been crushed either. I think you had some people who over leveraged and made some assumptions about rates that didn't make sense a few years ago. Okay. So I think valuations go okay because yeah, we're going to have a little recession. I think in those Southeast markets, they've got a problem, but if you're in a market like Cleveland, you don't have a problem. There is no supply growth in Cleveland. Cleveland's also where the industrial economy sits, right? Yep. So you actually may have better demand growth. And the other thing about, you know, as I kind of look at some of these, you know, Sunbelt markets, the real attraction of these Sunbelt markets in the past was that they were at a significant discount in cost of living to the Northern markets. And I think that discount has closed quite a bit in a number of those markets, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so I think that, you know, part of it has been migration. Part of it has been over the last 20 years, we haven't built industrial capacity. So those industrial areas have not grown as much, right? So the growth's all been in the Sunbelt. But if we were to think about this going forward, the Sunbelt's got a period of indigestion because there's too much capacity coming, right? And that's going to pressure NOI. It's going to pressure rents, right? That's going to pressure occupancy, right? Ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going to impact how much those buildings are valued. And for the ones that were over levered, right? And didn't build in rising interest rates into their forecast to finance the building, right? They're going to end up being sold to somebody new. Now, whoever buys that from the bank, I think that's a real opportunity, right? Right. So that's kind of my view. If I can buy the property from the bank at a discount to what it costs to build it, ultimately the value has to go to what it costs to build the building and the numbers have to work to build new buildings, right? Mm -hmm. So rents have to catch up, which means it's going to be a period where you're not going to start new buildings because I know a lot of developers, they can't make the numbers work today, right? right? right. And so they're not developing new buildings, right? So they're waiting for the numbers to work, I think. So you're going to have a short-term period of oversupply. You may have an opportunity to buy a building or two. And then you'll get a period where ultimately you fill up these buildings and then the numbers will work again and you'll be able to build again. Okay. That's kind of what I see for the Sunbelt. I think the real opportunity is going to be in these industrial areas that have been neglected, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's no supply, right? Where we're going to have better growth because we're going to invest in the industrial economy. That's going to provide, I think, opportunities to invest that people haven't really looked at. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I appreciate it. Thank you. Unfortunately, I have to drop Matt because I have to go and run. But Paul, I yeah, want to see. I'll hang out with Paul for a little bit. Okay, great to see you, man. Happy holidays for Christmas. Now, one of our audience members, I said, so inflation rate, I don't know if you said inflation was going to be steady at 2 to 3% a year, but are you are you saying inflation is going to be more than 2 to 3%? And then any prediction on how that affects cost of living, rent, those kinds of things? So as we know, there's been some negative rent growth in the real world, right? not government statistics, right? We're talking the real world. So mm -hmm. first of all, over inflation, uh, overall inflation is going to head down to 2%. Okay. okay. And the Biden administration is considering cutting tariffs on Chinese consumer goods in order to cut inflation more next year, because next year is the presidential election year. So they're going to try to pull every lever they can to get this inflation genie back under control. Hmm. But the genie's out of the bottle, and I think it's going to yeah. be really hard for them to do that. Okay. Plus with debt to GDP over 100%, there's no way inflation is going to stay low. Zero chance, in my opinion. Okay. And if you look historically at the U.S., inflation has been the U.S. solution to too much debt. Okay. Yeah. And we can go back over 250 years and just show that's what the U.S. does. Sure. Okay. All right. So we're going to have inflation. We're going to have more inflation. It's not going to be next year. Rents are negative in some markets. In other markets where there's not supply growth, right? You have rents have been creeping upward, right? They continue to grow. And so I think that's a market by market thing, Matt on terms of overall rents, right? So if you're in the wrong mm. markets with a lot of supply coming, you're gonna see negative rent growth and probably pressure on occupancy over time. And in the other markets where there's not a lot of supply coming, you're going to be fine. Yeah. So uh, it's good, uh, good feedback, thank you. I, I wanna uh, bring it home here because a lot of folks that are watching our programs uh, are you know, uh, rising or you know, small to mid-sized real estate investors, right? right? The, 
they, they may tell themselves, and this is maybe true, maybe not, that although the, the U.S. may be seeing a lot of industrial growth over the next couple of years, it, it is you know, likely true that the, the possibility for a real estate investor to, to be involved directly in either developing or repositioning an industrial asset, most industrial assets are priced to the point where it's hard for a new investor or a rising investor to get involved in those kinds of things. So if that's true, where does a new investor that's got, you know, maybe including bank debt, somewhere between, you know, a couple hundred K up to a couple million to put to work in investing in a specific market? Okay. What, where do they go? I mean, obviously, I've never been a big self-storage fan for the reasons that you said that it's, it's you know, kind of driven by the economy. Where does a rising investor go? You don't have to name a specific market with regards to geography, but if you are advising a, a brand new rising real estate investor that's got around that bandwidth capacity, whether it's their own money, money they've raised from their investors, where do they go with it? Well, I think one place they go to is single family rentals, hmm. right? Because we're not building enough units. You've got hmm. a demographic uh, tailwind behind you with the millennials. Yep. And right, the cost of construction is going to continue to go up. Yep. So right. three bedroom, the the uh, the family that wants a three bedroom, two bath, that wants to have a yard for the kids to run around and everything like that, they're not going to be able to afford to buy that house anymore because of rates and because of the wage gap and everything like that. They're going to be forced to rent for the foreseeable future. Right. And most, you're right. Most multifamily housing is somewhere between one one and a two bedroom. Sometimes it's three bedrooms out there. But I get it. If you're raising a family, you kind of want to have you know your postage stamp of a yard and everything like that for the kids to run around and all that stuff. So you think that how, let's just say even broader housing that's equipped for someone to kind of drop anchor and raise a family in. So that I think that, that's definitely one area. Good. I think multifamily after you get this indigestion, yeah. there's another, another area that, that will be doable is something, I mean, especially for the ones that may have between one and 2 million to uh, invest in something is some of this industrial flex space for light yeah. industrial because you can acquire the land and build something in the, let's say five to $6 million range, right? So if you can bring a million in equity and you can bring some investors so you can get up to maybe a million and a half or 2 million in equity, right? You can still control the property, but you can have something, this industrial flex space that would be a desirable asset. Yeah, no, and that's, and that's a good place to be guys. You don't have to buy a hundred million dollar ginormous no. industrial complex. There are flex industrial spots uh, out there, so think outside the box. Right. Um, right, so think outside the box. But like any other yeah. real estate, it's all about location. Yeah, no, it is, and that's and that leads me to the point that I wanted to make here to you, Paul, and the listeners as well, is that at the end of the day, guys, housing is going to get popular where there are jobs, right? If you look at the markets that really blew out in the last ten years, like Austin and those kind of markets, this because the job market, Florida as a state, right? The job market grew there. The Southeast became a more popular market because of regulations and because people started moving just where it was warm, because they could, you could kind of where a lot more people are working remote these days, whatever it is. You got to look at where the job market is allowing, it, it is growing and allowing for people to move. Like because of Zoom like this, you, know, you and I are sitting, right. you know, in, 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 a, in an office, not physically together, thanks to Zoom, right? So maybe there's more growth there for people that want to live where they choose to live. If they've got like a white collar job that they can, you know, work at home. Blue collar jobs are likely going to grow, guys, where there are some of the industries uh, that are going to be growing that Paul had referred to. Electric vehicle manufacturing, as Paul said, generates a lot of spill down of jobs that get created right. to make those EVs, not just making the EV itself, but the sub factory that's making some of the, one of the, one of the segments of that car. Where I, my, my guess is, Paul, just from a logistics standpoint, if I'm going to build an EV, like we, we own buildings in North Carolina. Toyota has agreed to make uh, a major part of their EVs in the Piedmont Triad in North Carolina. So my guess right. is that there's going to be secondary spillover factories that get opened up that are simply to support that Toyota plant, as you see in Detroit, you know, where there's a lot of secondary plants that are there to support the main, you know, you know the, the, the old combustion yeah. fuel. Uh, the, old, the old rule of thumb is that if somebody builds a new plant, for every job created there, there are five jobs created outside of that plant just to support that plant. And that doesn't include things like, right, food service or anything else. To support mm. There are five manufacturing jobs outside that plant created yeah. to supply that plant. That's not the guy, that, that's not the person that gets a job working at the grocery store where the factory worker goes to shop for their food. So, so guys, follow the jobs, as uh, Paul had said, industries to watch our green industries and also reconstruction of the infrastructure of America, the road work, maybe the rail work, that kind of stuff. Follow where those are going to go. Even like this isn't as exciting, but like concrete facilities, as Paul had said, concrete is going to become something we're going to need quite a bit of. 
to do what we got to do in this country over the next five years. So look at facilities that are producing the aggregates and the substrates that go into those things. And that because it's going to be a lot of jobs as well. Well, how do if folks want to reach out to you? I know you have a newsletter. You've got other outlets and everything like that. So people want to continue to hear what you have to say on the continuing changing U.S. and world economy, or just want to reach out to you for one reason or another. How do people get a hold of you? How do people take the next steps if they want to hear more what you have to say? The best way to reach me is to shoot me an email, pslote at greendrakeadvisor.com. To go on the website, sign up for our newsletter through there, our Views from the Stream newsletter. We have a large following now that continues to grow. We're now into the thousands of people and thousands of people. I think we're up to three to 4,000 people on the distribution list now, Matt, which is great. They're more than welcome to sign up on the website. Uh, as you can see, I've tried to recreate some of the greenery from the uh, stream around me, right? Um, just to feel free to reach out. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks for being here today. Uh, I wish you the best holidays with you and your family and I'm looking forward to connecting with you in the new year at a whole bunch of events and everything else. I appreciate the value you've given today and to the investing community with your thoughts on where the world's going. I know there's a lot that goes into looking at data and reading the two views of that data to you know, help investors like us about where things are going to go. So thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Thanks, Matt. Take care. See you soon. See you, Paul. Guys, great conversation, and and I think that the important thing for you guys to do, take the data here and to just make decisions on investments you want to make and where changes you want to make to your business based on the data that we have, right? Again, nobody's got a crystal ball. Nobody really knows what's going to happen, but we, what we can do is look at data with regards to where it's pointing, where trends are going to, are going to carry us, and you make decisions for your business to cover you on perhaps even worst case scenarios, plan for the worst, expect the best. And that's when you look forward to the economy, what it is. And also, it's also about looking for opportunities for things that may grow, as Paul had said, like EV construction, infrastructure growth in the United States. And I also, one more thing that I want to underscore, you just talk about very much with Paul, is interest rates. People say at all time high, but they're really not. They're actually about average for where they've been over, if you look at Paul's charts over, say, 40, 50 years. I would not be hoping that or, or expecting rates to go way down. I think that if you can model your business around today's interest rates, you're going to be fine. And if they go down, you'll be, that, that'll only act in your favor. I think that we should expect rates to be where they're at for the foreseeable future and, and, and you know, just build things around it. That's what I got today, guys, for the Cashflow Digest. One more time, guys, go to DeRosa Group, our insiders page at DeRosa Insiders on Facebook. Take a minute and join that page and join the thousands of people that are here talking real estate shop on a daily basis here on the channel. And that's where this program is broadcast live on every Friday at noon Eastern. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys being with us. And I wish you guys a very, very safe and happy, happy holidays. Take care, everybody. Hey guys, Matt Faircloth here. Thank you for listening again to the Cashflow Digest. I really appreciate you guys doing that. If you guys want to hear more about what DeRosa Group has to offer, go to DeRosa Group, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com, DeRosa Group.com online. You can hear about all the great things that we offer from an educational standpoint and passive investment standpoint on our website. See you there. And if you guys want to join our online community, DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, where you can watch this program get recorded every Friday at noon Eastern, and you can come on as even a guest or ask questions on the show. We hope to see you guys on our online community, DeRosa Insiders. See you there.